Hail and welcome to A is for Agrimony, coffee-stained notes on witchcraft. I am Margo, and I am very excited to be recording the 13th episode of this youngster of a podcast, this spring chicken. So having made it to my 13th episode, I've decided to celebrate with a 13th episode giveaway, which I'll be posting on socials probably this afternoon, this afternoon being this Friday, March 10th, uh, just as my way of celebrating my progress and showing my appreciation to listeners and followers, because I truly deeply appreciate the support I've received from all of you awesome witchy people thus far. So stay tuned on Instagram and Facebook for that. As always, you can find me on Instagram at a underscore is underscore for underscore agrimony. That's an underscore in between every word or on Facebook at facebook.com slash a is for agrimony. Uh, Patreons get to enjoy access to a private Facebook group that I have set up for ease of use when sharing the monthly spell and other bonus content in order for members to have more freedom to post and share images, thoughts, whatever they want, because it can be a bit limiting over on Patreon. And speaking of that, we are cranking with early release unedited video format episodes, weekly collective readings where I pull an oracle card, a tarot card, and a witch's rune, a monthly spell that members vote on and we perform together. But you're, of course, free to perform it whenever you want rather than join in with me and some additional bonus content here and there. It's a fun time. Check it out at patreon.com slash A is for agrimony. And speaking of spring chickens, I got some. Uh, that's right. It seems I can't stop filling my plate at the buffet of hobbies, passions, and new shit to try out in this life. Uh, and I might as well accept that fact. So newly added to my plate are four baby chickens. They were three days old last week when I picked them up. Uh, last Saturday. So they're a little over one week old as of the day this episode drops, and I'm already fully in love with them. They are two black Australorps named Belichick Lestrange and Violetta Black Australorp, and two silver-laced Wyandots named Narcissa Malfly and Delphine Pedro Pascal Riddle. Obviously. Um, I will be keeping them inside until it is consistently warm here in South Jersey, and by then they should be old enough to move out into their coop uh, on the back of my property where they will hopefully lead very fulfilling lives and provide me with fresh eggs and evil daily. My dogs. It's weird. Crazy. It's, 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 it's super weird. My dogs almost shockingly have displayed absolutely zero interest in them so far, but I'm far too suspicious to be relieved just yet. These are hunting dogs by nature, so for all I know, they could just be playing the long game. I see you, and there will be no murder in this house. Not by you, anyway. Okay, let's get to the meat of this episode already. We are revisiting Fortune and Flora and moving on in the fool's journey from the Emperor to the Hierophant. Ah, the Hierophant. I never really liked this card when I first started learning and reading tarot. The character looks like the Pope, and being someone who was raised in and subsequently ran from the Catholic Church, the card always felt anything but comforting to me, uh, almost menacingly domineering. Eventually, though, I found out that as a Taurus son, <laughs> the Hierophant is actually my ruling card, and I didn't like that one bit either. But I wasn't fully grasping what the Hierophant really represents in the School of Enlightenment. And I think, for similar reasons as mine, it is widely misunderstood or stigmatized card. Which brings me to why I decided to discuss Sage in this episode as well. Because um, for reasons of cultural insensitivity, 
widespread misinformation and the overharvesting of one variation of sage due to a commercial trend, nay, craze, it's caused the well-known plant to go from a spiritual powerhouse to downright problematic. But with information comes reason and progress, I'm sure someone once said. Um, So let's dive into both of these items in order to see a way through the problems that arise when we try to understand these two controversial figures in the world of tarot, as well as in plant magic and medicine, starting with the Hierophant. So I started off this uh, research by asking some friends on Marco about the feelings that came to them when they looked at the Hierophant card, because as I said, It's always made me feel uncomfortable in the past, and I wanted to make sure that my assumption about others having a similar reaction was actually true and real. So the responses I got were, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, I feel like I'm in trouble for something or being made to feel like I'm in trouble for something that I haven't done. And finally, um, this brings up associations with toxic masculinity. And someone even used the word domineering, just as I did. Uh, all valid feelings that support my initial point about why the Hierophant just isn't a crowd pleaser in the world of tarot and why I want to really explore the true purpose, meaning, and lesson that this character exists to teach. So let's look at the Hierophant as it appears in the traditional Rider-Waite-Smith style tarot card. Uh, The Hierophant is yet another figure that sits on a throne, like that of the Empress and the Emperor, But the domain that he seemingly rules over is that of tradition, established religious dogma, sacred ritual, and the institutional structure and formal or orthodox approach to learning, in which the master becomes the mentor and passes his knowledge to the student. He appears as an eminent figure. He's cloaked in robes of blue, white, and red, and crowned with a tall headpiece that has three tiers. The crown is meant to symbolize the three separate realms in which he resides. These are the conscious, the subconscious, and the superconscious. He is seated in what appears to be a sacred temple, somewhat like that of the high priestess. And by some, he is considered to be the masculine counterpart to the high priestess, as if she needed one. And we can easily draw comparisons to the patriarchal and authoritative church-like appearance of the Hierophant card and the more matriarchal and open and spiritually fluid appearance of the High Priestess card. But his temple, of course, is of a different sort. A similarity to the magician can be found in his hand gesture, with two fingers pointed to the sky and two fingers pointed downwards to the earth. But this gesture is meant as one of blessing and benediction. In his other hand, he is typically shown holding a triple cross, or also known as a papal cross, believed to represent the Christian symbology of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. On many cards, there is the addition of two figures, either seated or kneeling at his feet, seemingly ready to receive his teachings. Often, a tonsure, or monastic crown, reveals them to be monks. Between them is a pair of crossed keys, indicating the unlocking of great mysteries, as well as a balance between knowledge, wisdom, and thoughts, and the inner mind, or conscious and true self. Here is the imagery that makes so many of us cringe, for lack of a better term. It feels like the commanding force of the very organizations that tell us that we are doomed for even holding the tarot deck in our hands. So why is it even here? And what place does it have in this esoteric journey to the self? Let's figure that out. And let's start with the number five. 
In numerology, the number five indicates prosperity, justice, knowledge, and mathematical understanding, rationality, purity, and holiness. I liken the number five uh, most often to the coming together of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water with spirit, a very holy union indeed, and is best represented by a five-pointed star or pentagram. The number five is ruled by Mercury, the planet of communication, and is associated with the senses that we have, of which there are also five. These all seem to align with the figure of the Hierophant, which at its core represents the passing along of sacred knowledge from one wise figure to their progeny, their successors, or even their congregation. But there are some other attributes about the number five that seem less aligned. Take individuals with the life path number five, for example. They tend to enjoy having a good time and radiate a lot of energy. People enjoy being around them and they enjoy interacting with others, always open to new experiences. Adventurous number fives love to experience new activities in life. Number fives love experiencing life's adventures and also dislike busying themselves by making plans. Instead, they trust their intuition, being very capable of acting quickly. They dislike regularity or routine and are constantly on the lookout for new experiences, especially those involving interactions with others. Not really getting Hierophant vibes here. Something else about number fives, however, is that they love problem solving. This is because despite their adventurous nature, number fives have a sense of balance in their lives, have excellent communication skills, and tend to keep their minds on intellectual matters. They also love to build upon their knowledge and heighten their perception of the way of the world, giving them strong values and a drive to make positive change. They can also be hot-tempered, and crossing them would be unwise. Something else about the number five that helps us to see a closer resemblance to the Hierophant is the typical career aspect of number five. Because those with numerology number five tend to make great writers, salespeople, public figures, or celebrity managers due to their great communication skills. They could also make great orators or public speakers thanks to their elite verbal or written skills. This leads to great ease in positions associated with government jobs and leadership positions, and they are also gifted with the ability to obtain great renown or even great notoriety. There it is. We are starting to see more parallels now when we consider the passing down of knowledge from a position of great standing within a structured institution. Because despite the heavily Christian symbolism shown in the traditional depiction of the Hierophant, and despite the sometimes negative feelings that the card seems to elicit from many onlookers, that is the true meaning that the card is meant to convey. The passing down of knowledge, traditions, and a sound belief system. You could just as easily represent this with an image of a wizened and respected elder teaching their sacred folklore and traditions of their culture to the members of their community. And many tarot decks have in fact taken liberties to ease up on the oppressively church-like imagery of this card in order to convey the core meaning free of uncomfortable or oppressive or overly patriarchal implication. But when the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck was first designed, this was the imagery that best conveyed the card's meaning at the time. This was the image of hierarchy, wisdom, guidance, and divine teaching to a society at the very beginning of the 20th century. And long before that, as early as the 15th century, this card was widely referred to as the Pope. Yes, 
times have changed, and hopefully they continue to change, and that has been reflected in many new interpretations of the 78-card tarot deck. And although the depiction of the Hierophant card points to a very different time, there is still rich symbolism at work that can be applied today. Scary old white guy who would probably threaten to burn my ass aside. So let's talk about what is being really symbolized here. When we reach the chariot, I want to discuss the first of the three phases that are summed up in the major arcana, and that is the phase of the self, which we are still in. The first phase of the major arcana consisting of the first seven cards from the magician to the chariot. Remember, the fool is the one on the journey, so he is experiencing these three phases and therefore is not included in them, uh, is that of the self and personal awareness, followed by the collective and the cosmic. The phase of the self is all about learning who we are, what we want, what drives us, and what dreams inspire us. This is all about self-discovery, personal awareness, and attempting to find our place and purpose in the world. So rather than looking upon the Hierophant as an outside force that may seek to oppress us, we must look at it as a certain value we might benefit from adopting in order to enrich our truest selves. The Hierophant shows the fool or us, what kinds of ideas have come before, encouraging us to be students and also to collaborate with others as we expand and explore. The Hierophant is a messenger, a teacher, a wise wisdom keeper, one who passes on knowledge from one generation to another. He can be seen as a spiritual guide on the path to self-actualization, but all of these things are highly spiritual and even religious in nature. So whether you're comfortable in seeing him as a priest or a monk, an ancestor, a wisdom keeper, a revealer of sacred things, a teacher or storyteller, a guide or even a guru, his role within the tarot remains the same. It is still for you to interpret your own intuitive response when he appears, but if we keep the role of yet another educator, we can find guidance in this card, even if we initially want to run from the teachings he has to offer. The Hierophant, in this case, represents tradition, social groups, conventionality, conformity, education, knowledge, belief systems, conscientiousness, and responsibility. He asks us to examine our beliefs and ask ourselves if we make decisions based on what we think we should do, or if we are tuned into a higher calling. Is our foundational belief system helping or hindering our progress? Is it flexible, allowing for integration with our own personal lifestyle, or are we at odds with overly rigid or dogmatic principles? Who have our teachers been? Have they nurtured our spirits, or have they contributed to a state of feeling othered by society or led us to feel rebellious? Sometimes our teachers can be anything but a guiding light in our life, and yet we learn from them all the same. For my purposes, however, this will be the teacher that we actually benefit from, even if said teacher looks absolutely nothing like the papal figure in the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck. When we drop the preconceived notions of what a spiritual teacher looks like, we may find that they already are present in our lives, or they have been. According to LittleRedTarot.com, 
The Hierophant is concerned with spiritual initiation and usually depicts a figure who can be seen as a translator of arcane, mysterious, religious, or spiritual teachings, a conduit between gods and man, between the other world and this one. In this sense, it is a little like the High Priestess. Unlike the High Priestess, though, the knowledge held within belongs to a specific heritage. It has been passed down to you along certain lines. The Hierophant is the knowledge in you and is also you as a holder of that knowledge. It is all of the potential in you for passing that knowledge on. It is you as a student accessing this knowledge, and it is you as a teacher imparting it. It can also represent elders and ancestors who are teaching you. The grandmother who tells folk tales about the nature spirits of the land, the yoga instructor or Reiki teacher, the leader of your coven who you go to for reading recommendations or advice on rituals and spell work, the community leader who organizes events and celebrations based on the traditions of the area, our ancestors who bring wise counsel once we learn to reach out and also to listen. This is a figure who holds a space for you to explore your beliefs and through wise counsel and pass down knowledge, provide you with the tools to decide how you will live your life and how you will seek to benefit from a spiritual path based on these teachings. Though the imposing and domineering figure on the card may look a bit dictatorial, the true nature of the Hierophant is not one who is interested in what he can get from you, but rather what you can find within yourself and how you can find your place in the universe. This is how a true mentor should function. And this is much more expansive and inclusive of a meaning of the card, a far cry from the conventional religious customs and values that many of us automatically associate it with, understandably. As with all card readings, however, I urge you to remember the extremely valuable teachings of the High Priestess, and that is to trust your inner knowing and form a practiced reliance on your own intuition. Because there might be times when this card will in fact appear as a warning. For example, I once had a reading that uh, featured the Hierophant as well as the Devil and the Four of Swords. And though the meaning of the card supported it thoroughly, the overall feeling was that I was pushing myself to the point of becoming a slave to a spiritual practice, or routine rather, that I believed I needed to keep up with in order to achieve some perceived elevated status as a witch. But what I really needed was to ease up and be less rigid, regimented, and strict in this system that I had created because I was going to burn out. What I really needed was some grace and some rest and a reevaluation of what I truly meant to achieve through my spirituality. Hint, it was not this self-imposed status ideal that I had been attempting to uphold. You will have to decide what your spiritual teacher looks like, what traditions you value, what wisdom and knowledge is worth holding onto and eventually passing on to others, your own guiding and moral compass regardless of how or what you've been influenced to believe. And that is the lesson of the Hierophant. Pope or no Pope? Here are some quick correspondences for the card. The Hierophant is ruled by the zodiacal sign of Taurus, the bull who can be quite practical in their approach to life, as well as a reliable and trusted source of information. The very idea of a system of belief can be seen in parallel to the dependable and also stubborn nature of the Taurus. The number is, as we know, five. The element is earth, 
colors associated with the hierophant are green, rose, and red orange. Crystals and minerals include carnelian, jade, lapis lazuli, and topaz. And some primary plant allies are lemon, sweet pea, lavender, violet, mallow, sugarcane, and sage. And as stated before, keywords, intentions, and powers associated with this card are community, convention, mentors, doctrine, dogma, learning from a wise teacher, a messenger, religion or a system of beliefs, spiritual guidance, tradition, passed down knowledge, authority, inspiration, ceremony, fitting in with the status quo, spirituality, and wisdom. So, sage. If ever there was a plant ally that embodied the traditional, ceremonial, and almost grandfatherly energy of the Hierophant, it would have to be sage. Although I did consider frankincense until similar correspondences and the often misunderstood nature of sage called for it to be included here. I will be incorporating frankincense elsewhere. So why is sage so misunderstood or similar to the Hierophant in a way that it is viewed or incorporated into our web of knowledge as well as our practical use? Well, we tend to draw back away from the Hierophant in reaction to the idea of strict traditions and religious dogma. But in the case of sage, there are many who are drawn to it and even more who tend to overuse it as a staple in a very fluid and broad stretch, 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 stretch of spiritual practices, despite its deeply sacred and ceremonial status in cultures that are decidedly closed. In this case, I'm talking about white sage, or salvia apiana, the evergreen perennial shrub that is native to the southwestern United States as well as northwestern Mexico, and is sacred to many indigenous nations of the same region. Despite this, the burning of white sage and even the use of the term smudging has become a trendy wellness practice in the New Age community. And I say New Age community because it includes a broad group of people with mixed beliefs and spiritual paths and does not directly refer to witches or practitioners of magic, who would not commonly refer to themselves as New Age. In fact, most witches seek to separate themselves from the New Age label because of the widespread issue of cultural insensitivity as well as appropriation that can be found within the New Age and wellness industry movement, for lack of a better term. Used for different purposes from community to community, white sage holds a sacred place among the Lakota, Cheyenne, Navajo, and the Chumash, just to name a few. The Chumash people, native to central and southern California, have used white sage in healing sessions to purify the central nervous system. Still other communities have been said to use the burning of the herb as a ceremonial purifying ritual used before connecting with ancestral or nature spirits. A far cry from clearing negative energies from the home, which remains the popular implementation of the herb among non-indigenous folks. A practice, I'd like to add, that can be successfully carried out with a very large number of herbs that are not only just as powerful for cleansing a space, but can be found right outside our own back doors. We must also keep in mind smudging as both a practice and a word is distinctly indigenous and was actually outlawed and violently suppressed for indigenous folks, that is, until 1978 in the United States. Yes, it was illegal for natives to openly practice their own beautiful and sacred religion in the U.S. until 1978. I challenge you all to imagine 
what it must feel like to see hordes of people purchasing and burning white sage as part of the latest craze when your own people who hold the practice as sacred ceremony were prohibited from doing so under threat of incarceration and violence. I can think of no other way to impress upon the level of insensitivity that goes along with understanding these facts and continuing to use the plant anyway, especially when common or garden sage or salvia officinalis or blue sage, also known as prairie sage or grandmother sage or salvia azurea or even sagebrush or artemisia tridentata are all just as potent with their own unique qualities and far less problematic. I have juniper growing on my own property, which has become one of my favorite space cleansing herbs, along with dragon's blood resin and copal, which is a resin that is sacred to one very important leg of my own ancestry. I see no reason why my practice needs to contribute to not just one, but two major issues with the use of white sage. The second issue, aside from the problem of cultural insensitivity, is environmental unsustainability. Very unfortunately, the widespread popularity of the white sage amongst non-indigenous groups and the wellness world latching on to the energy clearing benefits has resulted in the over-harvesting and improper harvesting of the now near-endangered species of sage. In The Unstable Truth Behind Burning White Sage and Palo Santo by Paige Pitchler, Jennifer Siegel of Garden Apothecary is quoted, Unfortunately, less eco-conscious companies are using wild harvested plants from locations where the plants are indigenous. This may seem holistic, but with zero regulations, it quickly becomes an issue of over-harvesting and unethical practices. Pitchler goes on to add, as social media and consumer culture attribute a picture-perfect aesthetic to modern spirituality, this increased demand has also worn down the original purpose of the sacred practice. We see countless images of people burning a white sage bundle on social media. This tends to make people think it's a common habit, losing sight of the fact that this tradition is a sacred tool reserved for intentional use. To this, Artie Jalen, founder of Forage and Sustain, also adds, Without being grounded within a revered practice or ritual, ceremonial burning of sacred plants has given way to commodification and thus over-harvesting. This is problematic because it allows people to dip their feet into sacred spirituality that has very significant and deep meaning for many indigenous groups without requiring them to understand, learn about, or even acknowledge that significance. According to the College of Business Legal Resource Center, due to the high global demand for white sage, poaching has become a popular way for retail stores and brands that sell white sage to turn an easy profit. The only region where white sage naturally grows is in Southern California and Northern Baja. Though it is illegal in California to pick plants from public lands, native people have reported finding hillsides of white sage completely stripped. The overharvesting of white sage is a detriment to the survival of the species, worrying conservationists who predict potential endangerment. The California Native Plant Society, CNPS, reports that 50% of white sage populations were lost to urbanization, with the extremely high rates of theft on traditional lands coupled with the previously destroyed habitats. The future of white sage lingers in the balance. Saging the World is a campaign launched by Rose Ramirez, a California native educator of church descent, and Deborah Small, a professor emerita of the School of Arts at California State University, San Marcos. 
In partnership with CNPS, Ramirez and Small produced a short documentary called Saging the World to foster awareness and inspire action for white sage. This movement has also extended to exploring policy and legislative solutions that will diminish poaching in California and provide necessary protections to native plants. I should mention that similar issues are happening with other sacred plants and trees, such as Palo Santo and even frankincense in some regions, but for this episode alone, I'm sticking to the issue of white sage. I also want to acknowledge an argument that I have heard in the witchcraft community that involves the supposed burning of sage by Celtic druids in ancient times. It's an argument that is used to often justify the continued use of the plant by individuals who may have Celtic ancestry. And while smoke cleansing is and was a practice used the world over, there is actually no documented evidence of the use of sage specifically in Celtic Druidry. In fact, the only evidence of Gaelic nations burning vegetation for cleansing rituals involves juniper and occurred largely in Scotland, where it is still done by some today to smoke the house out for hogmany. The Druids do, however, have something in common with Native Americans, and that is their sole connection to the land on which they live. And for that reason, they would have burned herbs and plants that were native to where they lived and that had sacred meaning to them. Most members of the salvia family grow naturally in either the southwestern regions of the U.S. as well as the Mediterranean. So despite knowing so little about the Celts due to the lack of documentation, we can definitively debunk this claim nonetheless. Cleansing our environments and clearing energy is a practice that spans many different cultures and time periods, and the use of sacred plants to effectively do so can help to nurture or even rediscover our connection with the earth and its many gifts and blessings. And we can absolutely still maintain this beautiful tradition, rich in reverence for our earth, as well as the beauty of plant magic and medicine, without contributing to gross cultural insensitivity or the dangerous overharvesting of certain species. Mother Earth implores us at least to educate ourselves, to open our hearts, and to try to do a little better every day. That said, let's explore other species of sage, and how they can be respectfully used as powerful allies in our practice. Salvia officinalis, or common sage, has a long history of use in both ritual and medicine, recorded as far back as ancient Egyptians. A member of the mint family, the plant has been utilized in cuisine as a spice, in tea for medicinal purposes, and as a powerful plant spirit ally in magical use. Its primary properties are those of protection, longevity, and healing, wisdom, and purity. So you can see where purity and protection come together to make a very useful aid in clearing and cleansing sacred spaces, as well as the home. But there are other uses for this most common, versatile, and easily grown or acquired species of sage. As a medicinal herb, the plant is known to help support mental clarity, function, and longevity. I need some of that and has both antiseptic and styptic properties, meaning it can help prevent infection and stop bleeding. I also frequently need some of that. There is a folkloric proverb that points to the belief in the herb's ability to grant long life and health. It goes, he that would live for A must eat sage in May, meant to be combined with the consumption of the edible species during the month of May. 
In magic, there are many historic uses for the herb, such as writing a wish on a single sage leaf and placing it under your pillow for three nights, during which time you can expect to dream about your desire, which would indicate your dream is destined to come true. If you do not dream of your desire, you are to bury the leaf in the ground to avoid harm. Yes, I'd like to know what kind of harm also. Sage can be carried to promote wisdom, as well as to help guard against the evil eye when worn. Smoke from the plant can be used to cleanse magical tools, to invoke spiritual purity, and also to invite energies of healing and prosperity into your space. In kitchen witchery, you can add the earthy and pungent herb to meals while inviting it to lend its medicinal and magical benefits to the loved ones for whom you're cooking. Let's look at correspondences. Uh, the ruling planets for common sage are Jupiter and Mercury. Zodiac signs are Aquarius, Pisces, Sagittarius, and Taurus. The day of the week is Thursday, also ruled by Jupiter, as well as Thor. Elements are air and earth, and some deities associated with the herb are Rhiannon, Jupiter, and Zeus. And speaking of home cleansing, I have a homemade cleansing spray recipe that I want to share. There are many ways you can make an effective and aromatic home cleansing spray, but here's one that I find extremely simple and potent. You will brew a hot tea with either fresh or dried common sage, rue, lavender, rosemary, and lemon peel, and let it steep for as long as you like. You won't be drinking this, so if you want it to be extra potent, you can let it sit for a while. Light a candle meditate on how the spray will work in your home and try to connect with the spirits of the plants you are incorporating and ask for their gifts of purification, protection, healing, and cleansing. When you're finished, fill a spray bottle a quarter of the way with cheap vodka. I like to use vodka because it has antibacterial and preservative properties like vinegar, but without the odor. Uh, and I also like to use cheap vodka because it's cheap. Um, so then once you fill the spray bottle a quarter of the way with cheap vodka, fill it the rest of the way with your tea mixture. You can say a prayer over the new concoction or set it under the next full moon, whatever method you like to charge and empower your tools and your magical home purifying spray is complete. Okay. So before I bounce on out of here, I want to make two announcements. And the first is I'm tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. Uh, and I'm also finally owning up to the fact that working full time, caring for animals and keeping a house uh, with the help of my partner, of course, is a lot of work when you add a weekly podcast, a website and the still upcoming coven shop and you're just one person. So I decided uh, a simple solution is to take a quarterly break. Uh, and that's just the thing I need to reinvigorate my energy and stay caught up with all the life things while still keeping up my passion for this project of mine. So I'll be taking a week off from producing the podcast four times a year. Uh, so I'll still be cranking out 48 episodes per year while keeping my sanity intact. And my first break is coming up on March 24th. So next week, you can expect a regularly scheduled episode, which is going to be all about spring, the spring equinox or Ostara and the witch's garden. Uh, but I will be taking a break the following week. So no episode on the 24th. And then I'll be resuming with my next episode on the 31st. I'm sure you will all understand as you are all amazing, intelligent, talented, wise, supportive witches who are practically perfect in every way. I love you all.
The other announcement I want to make is something many of you might already know about, but for those of you who might not, I want to talk about an amazing event that is coming to the Northeast in April, and that is the Jim and Jupe Tour with the Witch Bitch Amateur Hour and Two Geminis and a Leo. Two incredibly entertaining podcasts. One, uh, the Witch Bitch Amateur Hour, which primarily focuses on an educational and extremely amusing approach to witchcraft and occasional spooky stories. And the other is Two Geminis and a Leo, which focuses on astrology in a way that is both educational and hilarious. These two podcasts performed live shows at Anahata's Purpose 2022, and now they are teaming up on their first ever tour, which will be coming to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Nyack, New York, and Baltimore, Maryland on the weekends of April 15th and 16th, as well as the 22nd and the 23rd. These events promise to be an amazing time for witchy folk, astrology-minded friends, and generally anyone who simply likes to have some fun and will be complete with themed nights. There will be an emo night, a country western night, a prom night, and a paranormal night. I'm so excited for this, and I am not plugging this event just because these podcast hosts are very near and dear to me, although I probably still would. But I'm also going to be there. I will be at every show doing whatever is needed of me to help ensure the events run as smoothly as possible with the help of a small group of friends and also hopefully seeing as many of you as possible in person for a rollicking good time in costume. What could be better? If you're interested, please go to anahataspurpose.com slash tour. That's A-N-A-H-A-T-A-S-P-U-R-P-O-S-E dot com slash T-O-U-R. Tickets are up and available for each show, and we suspect that they will be selling fast. So pick a night, plan your costume if you want to participate, no pressure if you don't, and I'll see you there. Okay, that is all that I have for you today. Please be well and have an amazing weekend. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A is for Agrimony, coffee-stained notes on witchcraft. If you like what you've been hearing, please drop me a review wherever you listen. If you want some more content, please go to www.aisforagrimony.com where you can find my blog, episode archive, spells and rituals, and soon to come, the coven shop. You can also follow me on Instagram at a underscore is underscore for underscore agrimony. That's an underscore in between every word. Or like my Facebook page, facebook.com slash a is for agrimony. Want to contact me? Shoot an email to reachmargo at a is for agrimony.com. And if you're interested in some exclusive bonus content, you can join me over on Patreon at patreon.com slash a is for agrimony, where I share early release, unedited video format episodes, weekly collective card readings, monthly spells, and much more. You're also welcome to send me some snail mail, if you're that kind of person, to P.O. Box 397, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, zip code 08003. I'd love a good surprise. or not. I don't know. Anyway, thank you for listening. Be well and have an amazing weekend.
I don't know. Sometimes he just disappears for a minute and fixes things and, and I should really figure out what he's doing. Anyway, 